Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We'll be looking at Matthew 10, verses 32 through 39, as our text this morning. Let's hear together then this word from God for his people. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This passage naturally falls into parts that reflect the movement uh, of Jesus' thought through this teaching. And I'd encourage you in your own scripture reading to, to look for that, that movement, that flow of the text that will help you to, uh, to discern uh, that the main truths being emphasized. Uh, we see, for instance, Jesus sort of linking together sentences here, verses 32 and 33, we see him setting up a, a, a parallel structure. You sort of hear the poetic feel to that as he's communicating a truth concerning himself and our relationship with him. And then you see that repetition of the verb, I have come, in verses 34, 35, and 36. And, and he links those together with a significant truth concerning the effect of our relationship with Jesus on other relationships. And then in verse 37 and 38, you see a repetition again three times. Uh, the expression, is not worthy of me, is repeated there. And there's a focus on the supremacy of love that Jesus expects from his followers. And then verse 39 comes to a, a climax and really sums up the principle behind the gospel that Jesus preaches. Uh, this, this text really takes us in a very different way than the rest of the teaching before it, doesn't it? If we had time to take, to, to read the whole of chapter 10 and get the, the whole of the teaching together, we'd notice that there's a sudden shift at verse 32, and, th and that's where I, that's why I broke our, our text out at that point. There's a dramatic shift in Jesus' thinking. And there's a shift in where he's directing our focus. And you notice it is to himself. It's to himself. He, he really is asserting that your eternal destinies hinge on your relationship with him. Now, sometimes we hear certain passages of scripture so often, we, we lo they lose the impact. But, but I want you to, to try to hear this again for the first time. 
and realize the striking nature of the demands Jesus is making here. In the, in the mouth of anyone else, anyone else, these would be the words of a megalomaniac. Okay, these would be the words of someone who is out of touch with reality, who, who somehow thinks that the entire world, the entire creation centers on him. That's the audacity of these claims. Okay? And that's why many critics of Christianity overlook this kind of material. Okay, that what we read today doesn't fit the image that most people in our culture have of Jesus. You know, the pale Caucasian with the soft hands, wavy hair, who walks around saying platitudes about kindness. <laughs> That's not the Jesus that, of reality. That's not the historical Jesus. He's a Middle Eastern, swarthy of complexion, probably black-haired, oily, dark eyes. And he's saying, it all depends on me. Your eternal destiny depends on what you think of me and your relationship with me. We need to hear this. He knows we need to hear this. And, and, and we want to hear it in such a way that, in a certain sense, it's as shocking to us as it would have been to the people that he first spoke to. So let's look at our Lord's words here in our text. Verse 32, therefore, or so, it follows naturally, logically, Jesus, from what I've been saying to you, what I'm about to say to you now. Okay, notice those little conjunctions there. Okay, he is just, remember we looked last Sunday at, 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 at that sort of summary truth, okay, that those who fear God are fearless on earth. Remember that? If you fear God, he says, you'll fear nothing on this earth. Okay? And in a certain sense, you have nothing to fear. Because the one you fear is the one who loves you and who considers you so valuable that he numbers the hairs on your head. And he is so sovereign that he knows when a, when a sparrow alights on the ground. You're fearless here in Christ. That's what he's saying. Well, what does that fearless life look like? What do these fearless people do? Well, first he says they confess me. They acknowledge me. They testify to me. Okay, however you can, you can flesh that out in your mind. It's a public identification of yourself with Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. There are, in the final analysis, no closet Christians. If you deny me, Jesus says, I deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Notice the special relationship he's, he's calling attention to there between him and the Father, by the way. He's using the term, my Father, here. He's, he said, your Father, before to his believers. He's saying, my father here, to emphasize that special relationship that he has. It's his opinion that matters. 
in your final analysis. Those who are fearless for me, he says, confess me. me. They identify with me. He says the same thing in Mark chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Do you blush to speak his name and worship? Everyone who acknowledges me, he says in Luke, before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This matter of confession is central to following Christ. And that's why it is the point at which believers first encounter conflict in their walk of faith. We see it illustrated in, in the responses of people uh, to Jesus, e even during his life, even in the gospel. You remember when he, he heals the, the man born blind, and, and the Pharisees don't like that because he healed them on the Sabbath, and so they're calling people into question. They call his parents in, remember? And they're scared to death. Death. Why? Because they know it has been agreed that anyone who should confess Jesus to be Christ, that is the Messiah, was to be put out of the synagogue. So they do their best to, to deflect the questions that the Pharisees should give, give to them. They, they say, ask him. Okay. Because they realize that to confess Christ, to confess the Messiah is Jesus, has a cost to it. Later in John, John chapter 12, we read, many even of the authorities believed on him. Okay, they're convinced by his words and by his deeds. And yet, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. What does that indicate? John goes on to say, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Those who confess Jesus value the glory that comes from God more than that which comes from man. And so, and Paul's, Paul's giving that wonderful exposition of the gospel that makes up the book of Romans, much of the book of Romans. He says in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And he ends that section with the quotation from the Old Testament, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. To confess Christ is to call upon His name as being the name that counts. The name which we worship and serve. When Paul's encouraging Timothy in his letter, 1 Timothy, he refers to Timothy making this confession. He says, You made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You made the good confession, Timothy. Hang on to that. 
don't let go of that. And he goes on to, in a very interesting way, to, to identify Timothy as a believer with his Lord. Because he goes on to, to refer to Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. You, you catch the echo there? You as a believer make the good confession because Jesus made the good confession for you. And it's just his strength that you do it. The writer of Hebrews says, Consider Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Hebrews 4, let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. To the heart of who you are as a believer, confess Christ. Forthrightly confess him. We go on with a number of other passages going all the way into Revelation to speak of this, this matter of confessing Christ, identifying with him through our words and through the confession of our lives. Well, what happens when you confess, as Jesus is talking about here? What happens is division. What happens is conflict. That's what he says in the next verse, doesn't it? Isn't it? Don't, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Your confession will not automatically generate a life of peace for you. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against a father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against his, her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He's saying there, isn't he, that even in the most intimate of associations, those within the home, there's going to be division because of the confession. He's not implying that this always takes place in every home. But what he's doing by using this as an example is saying that in every dimension of life there's going to be a division happening in the job, in the community, and even in your own homes. That's why he uses the relationships that he pictures here, by the way. When he speaks of man and father, daughter against your mother, daughter-in-law against your mother. You ever wonder why it didn't say son-in-law? Was well, because the son-in-law didn't move in with the bride's family. But the mother-in-law, I mean the daughter-in-law moved in with her groom's family. Okay, when a young man would be married, he would bring his wife to live with his extended family. He was saying even in, even in your most personal relationships, your confession may well bring division. He's quoting here actually from Micah chapter 7, giving it a slightly different application than Micah says, but nonetheless related. The son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah goes on to say, but as for me, I will look to Yahweh, 
I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Your confession may bring division into your life. There may be relationships that are strained, perhaps even to the breaking point. It would be, it would be a surprise if, if this doesn't ever happen. Even, even in our culture, even in a culture as open as, as ours, so many Christians run into this. Susan and I faced it in our own family. It's not something unique, unusual to you that this happens. Now, of course, we're not to be offensive in our confession. Okay, if someone is offended by my confession because I'm an offensive person, because I confess it in an offensive way, that's, that's not bearing the cross. Okay, I can't say that's suffering for the sake of Jesus if I'm suffering because I'm an irritating and obnoxious person. But if lovingly, kindly, and honestly, you're confessing faith in Christ, there are going to be times when it brings division. That's what Jesus is saying here. There are only two sides. Nobody's neutral. Nobody's neutral in Jesus' construction here. And he takes it even further, doesn't he, in the next section. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's even more blunt in one occasion in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. He's exaggerating for the sake of effect. But what he's saying is, your love for anyone or anything else has to be a distant second to your love for me. Peter encourages us to that. Now, don't be offensive. Be respectful, he says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You know, don't do things that would cause them to, to have reason to disclaim you. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Don't give any reason for offense, he's saying. But, he also assumes it's going to be inevitable. You're going to run into conflict. You're going to run into persecution. When you do good and suffer for it and endure in that, he says, that's a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Don't be dismayed. 
He himself bore our sins on the, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Your love for Christ has to be above every other love. Do you love him that much? Are there any competitors for the love of Jesus in you? Well, he takes us even further, doesn't he? Because he says in verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me unless you love me above all else. Unless you love me so much that you're willing to take up your cross and follow me. This is the first time this has been mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's, it's hard for us to hear this the way they did. Because crosses for us are beautiful things that hang on walls or on necklaces. But a cross for these people is an instrument of torture and death. So that's what they hear. They don't think of an article of jewelry. They think of that poor condemned man, stripped naked, carrying that crossbeam to the place where he's going to be crucified, left to die by exposure through slow suffocation, drowning in his own body fluids. That's what they're thinking. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross follow me. He says that over and over again. What does that mean? Except a willingness to put self to death. A willingness to, to sacrifice self if necessary for the sake of Christ. And it will be necessary. Self and Christ cannot rule at the same time in your life. You cannot belong to Christ and still be serving self. It has to die. That's why Paul uses the imagery of being crucified to characterize the Christian life. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. When he died, Paul's saying, I died. And so every day I reckon myself dying on that cross and living to Christ. Such hard sayings. So difficult to hear, aren't they? Why is Jesus being so confronted here? Well, we see why in the concluding sentence of our text, don't we? Because he's been leading us to this underlying fundamental principle behind his gospel. Behind everything he says. He, he, is, he is saying these things because he loves people. Okay? 
He's saying hard things because people need to hear these hard things because of the tremendous jeopardy in which they live. Here it is. Whoever is finding his life, literally he says, whoever has found his life has lost it. Whoever has lost his life for my sake will find it. I think this may be the saying of Jesus that is repeated more often than any other in the Gospels. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Mark 8. Luke 9. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Luke 17, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It may be hard for us to deal, to identify with a lot of the culture that Jesus lives in and know exactly how the people that heard this would have heard it. But surely at this point, Jesus is speaking directly to us in our culture. In his assessment of current culture, Carl Truman writes in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self that our postmodern culture is pressing people into the mode of expressive individualism. The culture around you is pressuring you to believe, to think, to make decisions, to spend your money, to act as if your own self-expression is of ultimate importance. It was brilliant of Apple to come up with the iPhone and the iMac. No wonder somebody came out with a magazine entitled Self. Our culture is all about Self. Culture says that you should be able to live your life completely free of any external constraints. Your decisions every day are to be made in such a way that will realize your own potential so that you will become the person whom you envision yourself to be. Your life is to be filled with activities that enable you to enjoy yourself, to entertain yourself, to acquire for yourself those possessions and experiences that bring self-satisfaction. Your ultimate purpose in life is to create for yourself a life worth living and, in fact, to create yourself in the image that you consider best. Jesus is putting his finger exactly upon the pressure point for our culture. This is why, by the way, our entire culture is obsessed with youth, with that imaginary, fictional creation called adolescence, this imaginary stage between childhood and adulthood, which really has no ground in scientific reality. That's why our culture devalues history. This is why individual power is glorified. 
And it's why there's an incredible rage lurking right underneath the veneer of modern culture that explodes in violence all around us, isn't it? It's why every struggle between people's desires is pictured as a zero-sum game. Something has to be lost by someone else in order to be gained by another. And it's why in a world where connection, either physical or electronic, has never, never been easier, that people seem to have never felt more isolated and alone. Not only do you have culture pressuring you this way to put self on the throne, that's been the devil's temptation from the beginning, hasn't it? From the beginning, he has appealed to human beings to choose self over the will of God. And it's, it's the desire of your own flesh, what the Bible calls your flesh, your own self-will. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus here is don't fall for that lie. Don't fall for that lie. Because if you do, you've already lost yourself. If your life is filled with the search for self-satisfaction, with regrets that you do not have what you deserve, and with hoping for some earthly condition that will finally bring you to happiness, you are lost. Don't be deceived. Self-fulfillment couched in Christian terms is still vanity. Putting the label, on Christian, putting the label Christian on a self-focused life leaves a person lost and apart from Christ. And here's the tragic irony about this. With an absorption upon self, Human beings sell themselves short. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it? He'll say on another occasion, you could get it all. You could get the whole world. And you'd be the loser. Human beings are hardwired for fulfillment that goes far beyond anything that culture or this life can offer you. And so if you're settling for something that you can get in this life as your means of self-fulfillment, You're missing out on that which God created you for. That's what he's saying. It's only in losing yourself, dying to self for the sake of Jesus Christ, that you will find eternal life that transcends this temporary, fleeting existence. Jesus is not saying this to deprive people of something they need. He is saying this to wake us up 
so that we don't lose that which is of eternal value. Jesus declared that he came so that his own might have life and have it in a sense over and above anything this world offers. Life and life abundant. And sacrificing self and service to God and glorifying him in all of your life, even in its most ordinary occupations, suddenly all of your life takes on eternal significance. Do you catch that? As soon as you shift from a focus on self and living for self-satisfaction and are living for the glory of God, then even those very mundane, ordinary things that you're doing for the glory of God are elevated. And, and you take the rewards for that into eternity. You see that? In a certain sense, you don't really wind up sacrificing anything in the end. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And as you lose yourself in this earthly life, as you surrender yourself and love and serve Jesus, he makes everything that you do in his name beautiful, eternal offering to him that you will take with you to eternity. No wonder, he says, that's really finding your life. <laughs> that's finding your eternal life. And you know, it's those who have lost themselves in this sense to find their identity in Christ. It's those who are of earthly good. Self-absorbed people contribute nothing of lasting value to this life. Absolutely nothing. But the smallest act of self-denial for the sake of Christ is used by him to bring about good now and forever. Those who are the most heavenly-minded are the most earthly good. The more fully you live for the glory of God, the more fully you will have an enduring effect in this, his poor, fallen creation. And this is the ultimate calling for you as a people of God. That calling that he gave Abraham to be blessed so that you can be a blessing. And in this, of course, you follow the way of your Lord and Savior. He doesn't call you to go anywhere. He hasn't already gone. Okay. You take up the cross of self-denial because he first took it up for you and gained your salvation. You live in service to him and to others because he came not to be served but to serve and give his life 
a ransom for many. You love him and love others, even your enemies, because he first loved you with an everlasting love. You lay down the life that he gave you for him because he, the author of life, laid down his life for you. And that's what we're about to remember in this communion service that will fall in just a moment. We remember that supreme sacrifice of our Lord and Savior gave his life for his people. And he calls us, calls us to turn from self, to lay down our lives in his service. Let's pray that he would enable us to do that. Heavenly Father, we confess it is, it is in some senses easy to say these things. It is hard to live them. And none of us would have to think very many, very many minutes at all to think of many ways that we live for self. It's so tempting for us to slip into that natural sinful habit. Well, we pray that that your word would, would wake us up when that is the case, that you and your grace and mercy would, would kindly convict us of our sin and expose our self-centeredness so that we can turn in gratitude and love to you. Help us, Lord, to, even in this communion service, to reconsecrate ourselves to you to again appreciate the depth of your love for us and pray that you would pour that love into our hearts so that we can love you and love others in return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.